Hi, Evan. Hello, Buffy. <laughs> so we have just interviewed my father. Was probably the funniest interview that I've ever been able to do. And yeah. the funniest, yeah, just. He's, he's, he's a character. He really um, is. He has always been incredibly supportive of me, of us, mm -hmm. of all the things that we do together. Um, I couldn't think of a more supportive dad in that kind of way, to be fair. Um, he didn't really get the concept of not using my name. Um, <laughs> Must have used it like 30 times. Yeah, I started yeah. counting and then I was just like, nah, no, no point. Just give up. So <laughs> this episode may have more bleeps, bleeps. than normal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the... Really, the intro to my dad is that he is actually the creator of the music for the show. Yes. So we've had actually a lot of people get in contact asking about if, specifically the music. Yeah, yeah, about the music, asking if we were ever going to release uh, the music. And we might do at some point. Maybe one um, day. Yeah. Maybe one day. But yes, uh, he is a jazz drummer. He is quite eccentric. Yes. Um, <laughs> has lived quite the life. And he has some fantastic stories, yes. which you are going to hear now. And yeah. Um, so yeah, Pretty enjoy. Special. Uh, slightly different episode for us probably more along the lines of rosewood uh, yes but you know i feel like he should just take over the podcast if i'm Maybe. honest like we you should know. just give up now yeah, probably <laughs> uh, he basically makes our lives look like really vanilla really vanilla i feel so bland right now <laughs> <laughs> and coming from you uh, that means that a lot yeah. so um enjoy what did he make his stripper name schleppadiddle schleppadiddle I, I don't yeah, know I, i'm not even sure unguided missile my darling father Enjoy. Okay, so we have a very special guest today. We do indeed. My father, the man who made Your me. Your wonderful father. <laughs> Hello. Hey, hello. How are you, Pops? Did you actually do a DNA uh, test? Are you sure? <laughs> your, mother, I mean, your mother's rather lascivious. We know that, you know? <laughs> why you make her go outside so she can't yeah. hear you saying terrible things. She ran off with Ron Stallings for a week. I do not look like Ron Stallings. And we won't talk, like we won't talk about Lucy hanging out with a Pointer Sisters drummer. We won't talk about that. And Keith Knudsen, Tramp, your mother, the Tramp. Anyway. Okay, so my mother's a Tramp. This is my father. Um, <laughs> she has, she has, You're she has, a Tramp. I'm glad very, she's not listening. She has, very, she has very good taste in men. Why she picked me up, good. I have no idea. She thought I had money. I agree. She thought I had money. Okay. All right. So we first of all, we need to come up with your your stripper name. So, I mean, do you have do you have an idea of what you'd like your stripper name to be? Saint Agnes Hospital attendee. That's not a stripper. <laughs> what Saint Agnes? That's Hospital. very left field. That's not one. Well, that that's that's one of the all time great stories. Saint Agnes Hospital, my first morphine experience. You forgot. Okay, oh. tell us. I mean, let, let's segue to that. Okay. We segue a lot. So tell us about your first morphine experience, Dad. Oh God, that's too late. That that's that's twelve, thirteen years old. We we have to start out differently. That's we have to work up to that. No, no, no. I think that's no, a perfect place to start. No. Come on, tell us. That's very embarrassing. Come on, you can't. Yeah, we Good. like embarrassing. The more go embarrassing, on. the better. So <laughs> Heaven's never heard the story. So go on. Okay, we segue to approximately uh, approximately thirteen and a half, fourteen years old. I was a voracious reader. I would sit in the uh, living room. No one else in the family could sit in the living room because I liked to read. My mother would give me a pass, right? There was a nice Baldwin spinet piano there and a huge library of, of the classics from Balzac to Freud to Tolstoy. And I would sit and read voraciously, voraciously. And I remember reading 
to Quincy, the opium, something to Quincy, to Quincy and Coleridge talking about opium. Go, oh, this shit sounds interesting. Opium. Hmm, and Sigmund Freud, you know, cancer of the jaw, cocaine. So I was already dabbling a little bit. I remember uh, taking an overdose of my mother's uh, aspirin gum. I chewed like nine packs. That was, that was maybe, <laughs> I was packs. maybe, maybe four or five. Uh, okay. But anyway, we, we segue ahead to the morphine experience. So <clears throat> I had a uh, <clears throat> nasty tonsillectomy. Okay. Oh, and I, uh, I remember the doctor saying to my parents, he shouldn't eat for three or four days because he just might hemorrhage. So yeah. can we just give a little background here? This is in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. You you uh, know the whole Michigan How can you? No, no, no. But the the only and you're the only Jew in the village. I think that's no, important no. for people to no, know. Before. No, no, not the only Jew. Maybe maybe thirty or forty Jewish families surrounded by Nazis. But anyway, another story. I had to carry a gun. I had to carry a gun to go to my 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 uh, my bar mitzvah classes. Another story. Yes, I did. So anyway, so they did the surgery. The doctor said. His name is A.J. Devine, Dr. Devine, Catholic man, wonderful man, highly respected. Doctors in these small towns are highly respected. Doctors first and the judges, all my father's drinking buddies, they're all Catholic, Irish or Italian. <clears throat> the mob ran the town, but my uncle owned the town. Another story. So anyhow, uh, very quickly, I remember the doctor seeing my parents uh, uh, make sure he does, eats nothing solid for three or four days because he, if he hemorrhages, it could be a problem, right? So... I remember begging my dad after about the fourth day, I uh, spring home. I'm starving. A poor child, you starving. I'm starving to death. So he brings <laughs> he brings home an enormous porterhouse steak. My dad had a, a small little chain of grocery stores. He brought this huge steak, uh, unkosher steak that he made in the basement for me because my mother was kosher. She she, she used to talk to God. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> very strange match. But anyway. I ate this steak and about three o'clock in the morning. I remember going to the bathroom and I remember coughing up chunks of, you know, I was hemorrhaging, right? So my mother came in and gave it, she gave a good try. She screamed. My father came, took one peek and he almost passed out. So uh, my mother dispatched my father to start the car and they gave me a, a towel. And this is like 20 below zero in, in Wisconsin, right? So we, we, we go to the doctor's office. He meets us there, and he cauterizes my throat. Very painful. He puts me back in the chair. He takes a pair of tongs. He takes some tannic acid. And he cauterizes where the where the wound is opened up. I just remember he had this very elegant three-piece suit with a gold chain on, and I'm spritzing all over his his. He's got his knees on my chest, and my parents are outside. My mother, hey, my son, my son. You know, it's very traumatic. Very traumatic. <laughs> I, I, I don't know the last time you were any part of your body was cauterized, but believe me, it's no bargain, right? One, one, once, once is enough. So anyway, in life is enough. So anyway, uh, remember him calling St. Agnes Hospital. He got one of the head uh, nuns, nurses. I'm sending the young cone boy over, put him in the geriatrics uh, section, give him a private room, and give him an injection of morphine sulfate and atropine because he's rather he's rather upset and he's quite a bit of pain. It's a rather traumatic experience for the young cone boy. <sighs> so my ear is perked. Oh, morphine. What the fuck? This would be interesting. <laughs> the fuck morphine? <laughs> Pharmaceutical, no less. So I arrive in a, you know, my parents drop, drop me off in front and they're immediately banished by 
by I'm, I'm surrounded by very elegant, tall, elderly nuns because there's a St. Agnes, heavy Catholic presence in the small town I was from. So I'm immediately ushered in a wheelchair up to my room. I'm, I'm giving a, a very a very nice shot of morphine sulfate, atropine. This is not bad. This is quite, this is interesting because I'm, as a, as a youngster, I was very inquisitive. Let's put it that way, right? So I'm in the, you know, I'm having wonderful dreams. I'm in consciousness, out of consciousness. All of a sudden I feel a little an urge. What is going on here? The groin is very erect penis. What is happening here? You know? And I'm really stoned, right? And I thought, what the fuck? So I somehow crawl out of bed over to the washstand and I lather up my hand with this big bar. I think it was Felsnaps. They had this huge bar of Felsnaps. Little did I know how, how strong that shit was. And I crawl back in bed. And when you're, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you ejaculate, you can hit the ceiling for Christ's sake, right? Really? It's a lot of, a lot of power there, a lot of pressure. <laughs> so anyway, I'm in, I'm in the bed and uh, the covers are kind of over my, uh, my bottom half area, my area. And, you know, I'm all sudsed up terrific. And I must've been moaning or groaning. It's not bad. Right. And It takes longer when you're 13, 14, you look at a tree and get a heart on, right? It's insane. Anyway, uh, or any orifice, any orifice possible erection. So anyhow, uh, really was groaning, you know, and I got my, my member in my hand, right? And just, just maybe two seconds before I ejaculated, I came, right? All of a sudden, I just feel a presence and I kind of look up. And the room is dark, right? And I see an elderly nun about six feet tall with a black habit and a huge white cross with a gorgeous, maybe 16-year-old, 17-year-old, what's it called, a trainee, a novice, Young, she looked like she's from none in training. Yeah, I mean, we don't know we're Jews, yeah, so know. we have no none in training. She was gorgeous. She looked like she was either Filipino or whatever. She's looking, and the big, the tall nun, the elder, she's got the flashlight, and she's got a ruler. And the other girl pulls up the the sheet. What are you doing? And she puts her head like that. Look, and I fucking came over both of them. I spritzed them both. <laughs> All I can say. Oh, and a really good one, like not a one, but a one and a two and a three. Jew power, right? And all I can say is the, is the, the contrast between the black habit and the white seminal fluid dripping down the cross. My first, my first very anti-social, anti, anti, uh, anti, anti-Catholic. And they both ran out the door screaming, shrieking. Well, they're supposed to be married to Jesus. <laughs> She, I, I wonder trying, if she was allowed to continue being a nun. Wait, she's trying to wait. Right? No, this was an old. This was the head nun. This was Saint. This was oh, Sister Agnes, right? Oy. And the, so the next day, my doctor came in around four, about six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, doing his rounds, and he already heard about the young homeboy. So he's laughing. He's laughing. He's trying to, uh, so, uh, uh, Mr. Cohn, I understand you had a little uh, visit last night. I said, yeah, I got the Holy Ghost. I spritzed the Holy Ghost. Of course, in Yiddish means I sprayed, I spritzed the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was obviously like nuns, right? I spritzed the Holy Ghost. I'm still loaded on the morphine, right? Howling with laughter. This doctor's laughing, you know, trying to be very uptight. So they moved me. No, he wasn't uptight at all. He went from my father's drinking bottles. So that was my first experience with uh, with an opiate. And But the next day, the young 
none. She came back to my room, wanted to give me a massage. Oh, Ooh. I didn't know about this bit. Yes, she wanted to give me a massage. She liked, I mean, maybe she liked the, the, the cut of my dick. It's the danger. It's you, very unholy it, of her. The moral like did a pretty good job. Who, who knows? Who knows what, why or I mean, what? okay. So I'm going to take you back. We're going to come up with your stripper name. I mean, you're, you're. Yeah, I'm not sure this. Spritzen, can, can Spritzen, be Spritzen, Spritzenheimer. Nun Spritz. Spritzenheimer. <laughs> So this is my father, Schlepperdoodle Um It's good. I like it. Schlepperdoodle Spritzenheimer. It's so lovely to have you on the show. So I mean, nobody could open a show like that. And, and SS, you know, SS. We could talk about the uh, the Nazi jacket I have in the back there. The SS we're not going to talk about the Nazi jacket. We're, we're going to skip out on the Nazi jacket well, that you tried to give to me. I was like, I don't want a Nazi jacket. You could wear it. Anyway. You could pause. You could, you could double it. You triple your business. It didn't look good. Listen, they did great tailoring. But it didn't look good. You it didn't like the strap in the back to hold the Luger, the gun? You didn't like no, no. I did, the jacket sort of held some sadness for yeah. me. I really. I, I was, was going to kind of spin it 180, you know? Anyway. Yeah, give it a new life. So as our listeners, you know, so something that uh, Heaven and I get asked a lot in a club, which is quite a weird question to ask mm-hmm. a woman, is what does your father think about you doing this job? So I'm very curious, Dad. What do you think about uh, stripping? What's what's your what's your experience with strippers before you knew I was a stripper? And what do you think about me being a stripper? I used to back Merle Hoover and I and Dean Riley uh, back uh, adult entertainer strippers, and I just remember uh, my initial reaction from behind this drop dead gorgeous. Beautiful and so, woman. sorry, when you say back, do you mean uh, so you're drunk? Yeah. And this woman, she, she walked in her hands and she did splits naked. And that was the finale, right? And I'm looking, this is quite a That sounds fantastic. That sounds so where was that? This, yeah. Where was that? This was in North beach. This was okay, in San Francisco, San Francisco, which is a famous area for strip clubs. Right? It is. So it's it's the first actually interaction that I had with strip clubs was when you used to take me to North Beach as a kid, and I would see all the strip clubs. Yeah, Carol there. Dota, Carol Dota, Carol Dota. Club. Okay. Yeah, it's very famous. She started the whole the whole situation. But anyway, you're asking my reaction to that and yeah. how it how it, uh, how it affected me uh, uh, in terms of your vocation. Um, I felt bad for the women because the men were such pigs. I felt bad. I felt bad. But the women were happy with the what they were doing. The men were fine. Oh, these fools. So but, do you think that maybe you felt more bad just at being a man and being associated with yeah, I people felt, that were being... these fucking animals out there throwing $2 <laughs> What? That's all you got is a dollar? You fuck. You, know, you, wish you, could, you, you wish you could dance. Yeah, like, come down to my club to have one that. I was embarrassed by, the, uh, by some of the men. I mean, they're, and they're, so who, who's Carol Dota? Tell us a little bit about Carol, Carol Dota. Carol was uh, a transformative figure in the entire topless scene in California, starting around 19, I'd say, 63, 64. Uh, Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, the Beat Generation, Fallon Getty, all these famous poets, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Timothy Leary, LSD. That was a little bit later. But the whole scene in San Francisco, North Beach was a, uh, still is a tourist area. Called the Barbary Coast, San Francisco, since 1849. There was adult entertainment and all sorts of uh, interesting clubs and stuff. Uh, Finocchio's, which was uh, early uh, female impersonators, 
my friend Dave Black, a great drummer, worked there for like 15 years. But anyway, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Carol Dota uh, was a very attractive woman. She scared the hell of me once. She came after me once at a club. I got very nervous. She was very... <laughs> came very, at you? Well, she just kind of... Hey, baby. What, should I want it to fuck you? Yes, or? yes, but she, it was oh, a little uncomfortable, a little uncomfortable. Um, uh, you know, I, I was I, I was pursued. It made me a little uncomfortable. But anyway, there's a difference between pursued and pursued. So anyway, <laughs> Hart McDee told a great story about being a, a pinned by TV Mama, who was this 400-pound wonderful vocalist uh, a stripper in a club. Uh, he was back. He was the club band this Enormous woman, 400 pounds, cornered him in the corner. He was scared to death. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and she was amazing. A, she was a dog. <clears throat> she was a stripper as oh, well. Amazing. Yeah. So what she would she would sing and then strip at the same time. Yeah, but she was her her uh, her shtick was she was enormous. She was four TV mama. Look her up. She was enormous, like 400 okay. pounds. Wow. Anyhow, uh, <clears throat> Carol Dota. We segue back. Her her uh, motif was she would uh, she would be on top of the piano. Uh, Steinway baby grand with the with the cover down the piano would come out of the out of the floor so right in the corner of uh, Broadway in Columbus the club was called the Condor and they had music there seven oh. nights a week <clears throat> so Carol Dota was kind of like a magnet she I mean for the for tourists would come in you know sailors would come in oh my god the, the fleet week and uh, it was like a, a jazz scene at the Matador and little clubs which later and my matriculation in music was playing at these small clubs, playing at blues clubs, playing playing at small jazz clubs. But Carol Dota started the whole deal. And when we managed a building in San Francisco, 1690 Broadway. Uh, this is you and mom. Yeah, 80 units. We had parking available for people who didn't live there. And one of the uh, people who came in to rent a space for his car was Jimmy Vento. Jimmy Vento was a gangster. Uh, Italian man, I believe, and he managed like five or six of these clubs for the Jewish mob. Okay. Okay. Right. And Jimmy Ventu, I used to go and hang out with him. He said, "Come on, let's go for a walk." And I would see these d- gorgeous dancers. I said, "How long is she? Gonna, how long do they work here?" He said, "Until they drop." You know, he was a very. He was. He was a very <laughs> until near, they drop. Until they drop. They dance until they drop. Wow. And I kind of, you know, I walk around with this this huge man, and uh, he worked for the mob. You know, and one thing with the mob, you don't steal from the mob. So maybe about five years later, I'm smiling, but this is pretty pretty sad. Uh, he was loaded. He was stopping his girlfriend on top of the piano at like two o'clock in the morning. And mysteriously, no one knows how this happened, but someone triggered the piano lift, and he was crushed with his girlfriend <gasps> underneath him. She lived, but he didn't. He, he, you know, he's asphyxiated. It wasn't crazy. He was asphyxiated. <sighs> Oh. Look it up. Do you think it was a hit? Of course it was a hit. Of course, the piano goes <laughs> off oh, by itself. That's a horrible way to. Oh, that's yes. a good way to so you're, I mean, yeah. yeah. I would say so, but your experience with strip clubs was mostly it was kind positive. of. It was positive. Yeah, it was positive. Yeah. So, In what way? Like, what else? Well, what other experiences did you well, have with strip clubs? The, the, the women obviously were very bright and uh, they were paid well and uh, they were good at what they did. They were good at what they did. And they were. Um, I didn't see any uh, consuming of drugs. I saw nothing. They, this, again, was what, 1969, 68, 69. I didn't see any consumption of, of And in those drugs. days, do you know, like, did the women work mostly off of tips or did they do private dances or was it just like stage no, shows it, where it, people it, would just it, tip them on stage? It was just tips on the stage. There was, there was no back room that I saw. 
at that time. And did they, do you know if they got paid by the club to be there in those days? Or it was just that, you? That, 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 they that, probably that. did back then. Yeah, I would think yeah. then you probably it would was, get pay, paid to It was to the case in up. London. You got paid to do your shift and then whatever you made on stage, you got to keep in tips. Because as a dad, I've always found you very supportive of my shenanigans. Well, um, you're, you're, you know, you're a very powerful presence and, you you know, you, you stand up for yourself and others, which I worry about sometimes you can get in trouble. And and um, no shame, which is good. I have no shame. So your mother, my grandmother, I think she would have been. Um, I think she would have been a great stripper. Yeah. Oh, she would have been thrilled if, if she saw you perform. Oh my. Probably. Yeah. So do you think that I have always been independently minded? How long? What, at what age did you work out that I was independently minded? <laughs> when I had to throw you out of the car, moving car, at when you were fourteen years old. You gave me shit about something, and I threw you out of a car, moving car. Did you? Yes. I don't even remember. You that. don't remember <laughs> that? No. Surely that's something to remember. You, 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 you knew how to press the buttons. No, but you must have known that I was a strong presence before I was fourteen, and you threw me out of the car. That makes you sound like a very abusive oh, yeah. dad. I don't remember any of that. Sit, used to sit in a high chair when I made my presentations for di- for Distant Mirror. This was a satellite dish company that you started when I was a child. And she would be with me when I when I would be I would go out and in people total strangers' homes, usually elegant homes in in, uh, in the Woodside area. Referrals from the 49ers who we worked for a lot of the players who we worked for who had the doctors, friends, the lawyer, the you know the lawyers, dentists, all the staff of the San Francisco 49ers. I got lucky, and uh, they became my clients. So. I, at an early age, we'd be playing with Montana's kids, with Jerry Rice's kids, with Eric Wright's kids, with Keena Turner's kids. And she always would say, she has 19 pair of shoes. I only have one pair of shoes. So anyway, we sitting in the high chair. We, we said, we go, we go back a little bit. And she would be watching the rhythm and how I spoke. You know, I'm a pretty good salesman. You know, we really, You're a great we, salesman. You can you know, sell anything to anyone. I know. Drugs. We got a special deal. We'll talk about, we'll talk about the purple cocaine. We'll get in the, we'll segue to that. But anyway, at that time, it was maybe a year old, and I would take her everywhere with me, literally everywhere. And uh, you spoke, and you had a vocabulary already. You must have you must have had a thesaurus in your brain cell somewhere. You know, a Webster's dictionary. You had an amazing vocabulary for a young for a young child. So it's just an appropriate time where the guy is you're sitting. In this elegant Joe Montana room, you know, the old Italian 65, 70 year old man who loves the 49ers. And I got all these leads from the 49ers. And then all of a sudden she would blurt up, Daddy, Daddy, does this mean I get a new pair of shoes? Right, just at the appropriate time. <laughs> like, as if to say, make the fucking sale and we'll go and get out of here. You'll, you'll buy me some shoes. <laughs> You used to promise me new shoes every time you got a new sale. So yeah, that was remember. definitely part of my. Remember, I do, you, yeah. You, you used to, you and your your sister used to say, "I know he he can't even." We would go to a, a Mexican restaurant after I had a very successful day, and one day I had twenty five G's in cash in both pockets. That's a lot of it's a lot of hundred dollar bills, and as we slid into the booth in Alameda, you guys were on the opposite side, and you were laughing hysterically because I had to lean over in the booth to reach into my pocket and I couldn't I couldn't get the wad out of either pocket. So you guys were shrieking. You knew it was it was good. It was a it was a good day. 
Well, I think this is maybe like my my fascination with making we're, cash yeah, came from cash. you. Always, you always had cash. That was like you you were always like to walk around with cash. You were always very generous. So, what I want to know from you is some backstage stuff. So, when you sort of would be hanging out with different artists and different performers and things like that as a jazz musician backstage, what um, what interesting things come to mind from that? Were there ever any interesting live one women who were of the sex trade in any way that come to mind for you? Oh God! Oh my God! Mm. You mean <clears throat> Bishop's ex-girlfriend that he tried to fix me up? With? Yeah. Oh, Tell God. us about that. Okay. We set the stage. 1968, 1969, maybe 1970. <clears throat> uh, well, when, when Miles Davis used to wear suits, he used to wear clean suits, you know, sharp, with uh, with Herbie Hancock, uh, Tony Williams, and Ron Carter, and Wayne Shorter, playing at a club called the Both And in San Francisco, the jazz club, most famous jazz club, the best jazz club. It was on the corner of Divisadero and and uh, and and Fell, or Divisadero and Oak, right next to uh, right next to uh, Kelly Moore Paint Company. This is good. I need markers to remind myself of what happened. So I was a Sunday session drummer, which meant that I, <clears throat> myself, and Steve Teray, we were the only white guys in the club. Total African American. It's their music. We were lucky to be on the bandstand, but we we played in the, the session band on Sunday. So Norman Bishop, Norman Williams, was a legendary alto saxophone player. He was so good, I bought him a new horn. He was playing a plastic horn. I bought him a horn. I had I always had some money, right? I bought him a, a nice uh, Selmer. I used, but, you know, a couple of Gs. Was so Bishop the one who was always in green? Yes, Bishop. Bishop. Yeah, so he would gathering. wear, so he, top, from top to tail, he would be in green, and he had a green saxophone as well. That's right. That's right. But then and he also did a lot of methamphetamines. Yes. He played very fast. <laughs> yes. Yes. He abused stimulants. But a wonderful man, he befriended me because I had a Jaguar. He had to have a Jaguar. So we had matching Jaguars. Another story. But anyhow, um, I worked with Bishop a lot. He, he's really the first really, really great uh, uh, saxophone player. And he composer. He did nothing but hard bop music with Charlie Parker. He really studied with, he knew. He knew Miles, so he was the guy. It was kind of like my older brother, in a way, my older musical brother. He was maybe 10 years old, 15 years older than me. I, mean, I might have been 20 through, 22, 23. Uh, yeah, 44, 44, 44, 44, yeah, I might have been 25, 24, 25. It's a very adult situation, this jazz clubs, right? So anyway, uh, Tony Williams, who, I, who, who befriended me, and I are standing by the bandstand. And Miles Davis is right, right, sitting at a table right, right next to us. And um, so these are great, great royalty of jazz. Miles Davis, what are you mm. kidding me? Right. So anyway, Tony wanted to buy my hi hat. I had a handmade hi hat uh, stand that you, you look at it, it would play itself. It was just this one-off. This genius named Pop Solon, this wonderful man in Santa Barbara, actually made me a pedal and a hi hat that was just—it it looked like a dentist chair or a dentist drill or something. I don't know. But really played beautifully. And Bishop wanted to fix me up with some live ones. He thought, you know, you need you need a little black pussy. You know, you're you're, you're pretty square. You're Jewish. You're a little a little. Uh, 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 yeah, your mother probably hovered over you. Probably send you apple uh, baked apples on the Greyhound bus. You know, he had me pegged. So he wanted to fix me up with some live ones. I said, Bishop, I'm I'm okay. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. I got I got one of my girlfriends. Got a whole pocket 
pocket full of money and a whole pocket full of cocaine. He's cocaine. So I had to hear about more, more because I did, I did dabble quite a bit. So anyhow, the, That's one club, way of the club is fucking packed, packed. Miles Davis, are you kidding me? And all of a sudden, the door opens, and here comes this gorgeous, gorgeous, you look like a combination of Eartha Kitt and Lena Horne. And who's the other one? The, 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 uh, the Supremes, Dinah Rush. She was gorgeous. And, and she came charged. Bishop is his ex-girlfriend, whatever, comes charging, charging towards me. I look at this woman, makes a beeline right to me, right? And she tries to kiss me, right? And she's drunk, dangerous. She tries to kiss me. And she, her eyes are bright red, fire, you know, she's drunk on her ass and she's high, bad combination. And she's tiny and she's gorgeous. And she's got on spike heels. So she might've been on a good day, five feet. So she's like five, three. And I, you know, I kind of pushed her away. Like, what the fuck? You know, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I, at that time I looked like the Jewish Jimi Hendrix. My hair was out to here, you know, maybe, maybe weighed 125 pounds. My hair is out to here. And uh, uh, she's screaming. And then I kind of grabbed her wrist just to keep her away from me. And I, at that time, I had hands of steel. And I'm squeezing really hard. I'm, you know, you're fine, but no, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're wild. You're, you're a nutter and you're dangerous. I just sense that. So I'm squeezing pretty hard and she's shrieking and she starts kicking me, kicking me with her spike heels. Then I see these big tufts of hair. She scratches my face. She's got long nails. She scratches my face. And I see these tufts of hair. She's pulling my hair out, right? These big tufts of hair. What the fuck? So uh, at that moment, Bishop comes behind her and he puts her in what's called a full Nelson, which is like a wrestling thing. You get behind a person. He walks her onto the sidewalk and throws her down onto the cement. Bad scene, right? The whole place while this is going on is like, watch, let's watch this white kid. How is he going to handle this one? You know, like, oh my God. So 20 seconds later, she comes charging back in with with one of her shoes off on one leg charging it and she attacks the doorman and tags him about four or five times in the scalp he's bleeding and she comes for me again comes for me again at which point miles davis says you fuckers are crazy and he lee he gets up and runs from the table and tony is just standing there watching this she comes for me again this time bishop and one other person his name was wally they escort her out and this time when they throw her out the front door that's it. She doesn't come back in. Who knows? She's probably still laying there. Beautiful woman. So she's escorted rather forcefully out of the club again. She did not come back in. So we play, you know, Tony, Tony Williams, who's a great drummer, said to me, uh, uh, Myron, Myron, I just remember his choice of words. You handle that scene with such panache and aplomb. I never could have handled that. You just, I said, I handled it. What about an all black club? I'm going to be killed here any second. How do I handle it? What do you mean handle it? Jesus Christ. So uh, everything's cool. You know, two or three weeks later, I say to Bishop, uh, so Bishop, uh, what happened to your girl? I thought, you know, I, she was fine. I thought maybe I'll, I'll check this out. The cocaine sounds interesting. <laughs> she was gorgeous. Absolutely fucking drop dead gorgeous. Dangerously gorgeous. So I said, Bishop, uh, tell me about your girlfriend. What's going on with your girlfriend? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. What do you mean? What do you mean you don't want to talk about it? I'm trying to imitate Norman. I don't want to talk about it. Norman, where, what, tell me about your girlfriend. She's in prison. 
What do you mean she's in prison? She's in prison. I said, tell me more. What do you mean? This is the woman that you're going to fix me up with? She's in prison? Yeah. What happened? I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Tell me. She killed her husband. <laughs> she killed her husband. She killed her husband, Taki. I'm going Yiddish. I'm tuning in. She killed her husband, and you're going to fix me up with her, the little Jewish boy with a shiksa goddess. You're going to fix me up? You're going to fix me up with this gorgeous woman. She, But she killed her husband. So, Norman. How did she kill him? How, how did she kill him? She stabbed him in the eye with an ice pick. I go, oh, hey, oh, hey. Oh, yeah. First, it was wow. bad enough to hear about a husband, but then ice pick and I stabbed her in the eye. And I'm thinking, this is who he wanted me to go out with to kind of, you know, <laughs> to, to uh, increase my game, you know, in the uh, sexual oh, performance I mean, department. Jesus Christ. She I can see why him. maybe you didn't go away. So I'm going to well, ask you. Go ahead. Ice pick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the our theme music um, is you. Our theme music, right. our theme music for the show right. is you. Um, and so uh, tell us a little bit about that. What what were you doing? How old were you when you created that? What year was that? Okay, the great Hart McNee, we used to call him the Mighty Flea. He was incredibly gifted. I met him in Madison, Wisconsin around 1963 when I started playing there. There was there was a, a session with Ben Sidron, big big name Ben, big big name Tracy Nelson, all the all the hangers on would be there. Elliot Eisenberg, very good drummer. Um, and they'd have these sessions at the, it was called the Rathskeller on Fridays. They'd have sessions. And uh, sometimes you'd play outside in the terrace in Madison, Wisconsin, wonderful campus. And I was already playing. I was playing in clubs at 14, for Christ's sake. So I was always a fairly seasoned drummer. And I was funky, definitely funky. But I could play with brushes. You know, I definitely could play. And I had been playing from early, early, early age. So anyway, uh, we're outside. And here's this maniac hanging upside down off the balcony playing soprano saxophone trying to impress the love of his life, Mary Lou. That was Hart McNee. So Hart and, Hart and I played together in different groups, the, the Imitations, the Fabulous Imitations, great R&B band, and, and opposite Steve Miller and Boss Skaggs. These were all our musical uh, partners in crime. We played fraternities, and uh, Hart and I played music a lot. And then over the years, he went to the service. He came out of the service, severely damaged, Jesus Christ. Um, and... Uh, Damaged him mentally, I get very violent. Um, but he could really play. He could play. He played soprano, um, alto, tenor, baritone, piccolo, flute, bass flute, uh, and he had a straight soprano and a saxella, which is what like Roland Kirk played, a stretch saxella. So we played kind of funky avant-garde. I have to say pre pre weatherport, pre weather report type of music, but it was funky. And we decided to go into the heart and I decided to go into the studio. Uh, and we had, we had a, a mentor, a good friend of mine. His name was Brian Rohan, a very famous attorney uh, who signed a lot of the, a lot of the rock and roll groups, uh, the Grateful Dead, Santana, Janis Joplin. That was the scene that was going on at this time. So Hart and I, uh, we, we were given a bunch of free studio time and we went into the studio and we, we might have hired a few other players just to play percussion. Kenny Nash played some percussion. And uh, I can't remember what the upright bassist was, but Hart did most of the singing and piano playing and bass playing, all the reeds, all the, all the flutes. And I just played uh, a set of drums. I played some per- percussion equipment. But that, 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 that was created around 1972, Roy Chen Studios in San Francisco in Waverly Place. And Roy Chen was an Asian man, Chinese man, and he loved music. And 
he was obviously very wealthy and he started a, a recording studio. He used to always roll up in his Cadillac with a bottle of, uh, he was like the, the forbidden son, the, the black sheep of the family, probably a Tong family, you know, gangster family. And uh, he'd have a bottle of, a bottle of, uh, uh, of Cuddy Sark that'd be swigging off. And he liked us to hang with musicians and, and listen to the music. But we created that and it lied dormant for years. And then I always had a copy somewhere. Uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it was, we, it's wonderful. We had no commercial success, obviously, but it was just a duo. Just the two of us, and and uh, uh, that was the kind of the beginning of uh, my understanding of how a, a creative person, such as Hart, Hart was much more creative than me, um, could layer the music. You lay down a rhythm track, and then you put stuff on top, and you I mean, you schlep the vocalists in for the overdub, blah blah blah. It's a whole different ballgame. We did everything live. Well, it's absolutely fantastic. Mm, it really I mean, it's our sound. It is our sound. It's our signature absolutely. sound. We love and it. I mean, something that, you know, going back to the sort of original of stripping is, you know, as far as you are concerned, you know, when I, I didn't share with you that I was a stripper for many years, I sort of kept it because I wasn't sure if it would upset you and I didn't want you to be worried about me. And then when I did tell you, you know, you sent me this beautiful message that I remember where you just said that you were really proud of me. It was when I had gone to Miami and you, you know, you said how proud you were of how adventurous I was and brave, I think was what you said. Well, I saw, I saw how you and your sister reacted to music. You had a, you had a, like a, a gypsy dress that that woman, Laura, Yes, house, we, an au pair we have. Her, her name was Laura. Uh, she made for you. She's a good seamstress. And you would wear that dress and you would just twirl to the no, to the, to the nth degree on the on the porch in the back with your little rabbit. You had a little rabbit name. I forget. What it was Snowball. Called. Snowball, mm-hmm. snowball. Disappeared. Little bits were found a couple of days yeah, later. But yeah, But I saw how you reacted to the music, to the groove. The groove. You would, and you just couldn't help it. You just start twerking, twitchy, whatever, whatever a seven-year-old does. Definitely not twerking. But anyway, um, very quickly, I remember another event that cemented in my brain your ability to react to the music because to me it's all about the groove and uplifting people's consciousness and making them feel good that's what music is that's what i'm here for yeah the soloist in front of me give them the groove so they can so they can you know create joy so anyway we went to a concert it was a latin music concert it was in san francisco and the great drummer my dear friend arrestus Villato, who's a famous famous cuban uh timbali player mostly famous cuban drummer uh, they, they were on around the bandstand and they were playing and it may have been five, six, seven hundred people there. And we were up in the balcony and they were saying, fuck, I'm going to go dance. And she just took off and got up on the stage and started fucking dancing. I just remember Ori looking at her like, this, this is Myron's daughter because they, they used to see as children I would take them to the gigs, right? So as soon as got up on the stage, the whole, like 50 people charged the floor and the stage and started dancing. So I saw that she had that that magic that you have. You you, you have moves that forget it. You got the same thing that Lynn has, Sister Lynn. It's and genetic. And my mother, my mother was she would talk to God. She would start shaking. She would like she a, also had like heart. six husbands and would yeah, uh, she, she you know of the stuff. Hey, such passion on the mobile hill floor. On the mobile <laughs> our, mo- mobile home floor. 
<laughs> Barbara's still my old, my my existing one of my existing sisters. Barbara took my mother to Israel. My mother was maybe seventy at the time. Barbara was maybe thirty-five. Divorced, hungry, horny. My mother seduced this gorgeous Israeli tour director who maybe was twenty-seven. He had a thing for old women. Who who knows? But my mother scored, and Barbara was left like, "What the fuck?" My own mother, right? Anyway. It's a fun family. We're, we're, you know what? We, we're, we're an attractive family. Well, I'm we very done? grateful for you to, we are. We're very grateful for you to come on the show. You get Thank nothing. You, so you get, you get anything. You get no, you know, <laughs> you know guns. No, what, what, no guns. No, no ejaculating on nuns isn't no, enough. No. How about bringing the synagogue? I have guns. How about, how about, how about pulling a gun on the rabbi? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No. I mean, we have to save something for season four. I don't mm-hmm. know. So, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna pick out one your your most outrageous story, you, where you just go, oh my god, did I do that? What is it? Oh God, does it involve cocaine or no cocaine? I, anything? Oh you want yes. Go on. Okay. Yes, this is revealing. This is pretty revealing. I could be arrested. No, it's most of people <laughs> I are doubt dead. It. So anyway, somehow Bishop warned me to stay away from. From stimulants specifically cocaine that'll take you down Cohen. and of course you're hanging out with miles davis you know you're hanging out with the guys and you're able to talk to different cultures see i was a college educated myron cone articulate he can pass over here he can go over there so suddenly i found myself as a middleman between the the uh the hell's angels who had the best cocaine in town and and the ghetto brothers who had the best heroin in town. I became the middleman. Mm-hmm. And the middleman is the guy that goes and gets the substance from the mob, and then he takes it to the people who front the money, twenty twenty five thousand dollars if not more. Okay, so I was the middleman. Anyhow, I got very 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 uh, over the top, over the top. And I'd have to say my consumption of this drug once you have rolling stone cocaine that's it you keep looking for it right oh this is good so i became a, a dealer and i would score large you know kilos of cocaine and then i would take my little percentage and i was cool right however one of the my customers was a gangster of the first order and he always traveled with two or three uh bodyguards and hitmen with him and at the time, I was living at 439 Cole Street in San Francisco. And all my roommates moved out other than Hart, Hart McNeil. He stayed because there was always a lot of drugs around and lascivious women would come through another story. So anyway, Hart and I were living in this uh, beautiful Victorian at 439 Cole Street. And the landlord liked me because I collected the rent. Everything was cool, right? So, but downstairs, I rented to these guys who after what's called a chop shop and they would steal motorcycles in this case the police department's motorcycles and they chop them up porsches so we're doing illegal activity so just i'm setting you the the stage here a little bit so i'm upstairs and one of my customers was supposed to be there nine o'clock the night before to pick up his his uh his maybe a quarter it was it was a quarter pound of coke really good cocaine and I warned him, you better be here on time because I have no I have no control over over what will happen. You know, I'm a good time Charlie. So to make a long story short, between Hart and I and a lot of the, the roommates that were there, we went through 
alcohol to cocaine. And it was just a teeny little bit left in a bowl, right? Just both of us fucked up. And it, here comes the, the, the guy who had given me a gun maybe a month, two months before because, you know, I was doing deals for him and I had that, you know, thought, you know, you should have a gun with you. So it was a chrome-plated uh, Smith & Wesson Detective Special. I remember that. 38. Small. Could fit in my boot. Anyhow. <laughs> so he came back and Hart's sitting on the floor shaking, right? You know, his, his legs out in front of him. He's paralyzed. He can't move out of fear. Plus, he's so high that he, he couldn't move. And uh, the guy came in and he said, Byron, uh, where's my Coke? And I said, that's what's left. I told, I've warned you. Boy, check, I've warned you. <laughs> so he said, where's my gun? So I grabbed the gun and I unload it. And I wipe the prints off and I hand him the gun. He loads it, loads the gun up. And he looks at one of his one of his lieutenants, his, his hitman, and the guy grabs a pillow off my bed. And he's going to fucking kill me right then and there, he's got the he's got the pillow on my stomach. He's got the gun. The guy said, "You know, Myron, I warned you. I warned you not not to burn me. I warned you. And this cocaine was going to put my family on easy street because I'm going to prison in, in two weeks. I got to go. You know, I got to go to prison. So this is where I'm heady with this. So what happens just at that pivotal moment in time, Myron Cohen's life? All of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of flashing lights. The fucking police." busted the illegal chop shop downstairs they broke the door down and they came charging into my apartment and these guys saw the cops and they ran out the back and one of the one of the uh <laughs> one of the women threw me her baby and ran and i'm, I'm standing like a schmuck with a baby hard hard as just trembling his legs are going you can't move he's frozen and the, and the lead cop comes in. He said, you're Cohen, right? Inspector, you're uh, Mr. Shellcross. Mr. Shellcross said, uh, you're okay. And he charged after these guys in the back. So, you know, they busted everyone, took the tools, uh, big scene. So 20 years later, the soccer queen and the, the loudest person on, on the team, the parent was. So just to say, my sister is the soccer queen yeah, at this point. soccer queen. Uh, Debbie Musante. Debbie Musante was the daughter of Inspector Musante, who I met in the bust 25 years, 20 years before, 30 years And this before. is a mother of one of the, the girls that she played on the soccer team with. <laughs> uh, that was, a, I was pretty lucky. So what happened is maybe four years later, you and I, I took her to, the, to, to uh, Fillmore West on a date, our date. And so my mother out, and you. We would hang out in the back, you know, Listen, and all of a sudden, it was like the there were guards there, but all of a sudden the guards kind of like me. Where here's the guy that I had burned four years ago. He comes charging up to me, and kind of looked at like, oh my god, this guy's bad. He looked, you know, six four, maybe two hundred and fifty pounds. He said, Byron, you're such a lucky man. Do you remember me? I said, how could I forget? Of course I remember you. He said, I found God in prison, so I'm going to give you a pass. But you were that close to being to being dead. Do you realize how close? Wow. I said, yeah, I was pretty close. I was also pretty wow. high too. <laughs> I am so happy oh, that you did not get shot in the stomach for yeah. a quarter pound Otherwise of cocaine. Wouldn't be here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be yeah. here and couldn't be the stripper that I wanted to be. More We're good gonna stories. more good stories for you. More good stories. We'll have to do in season we'll have four. Have you on next season? We just exactly. once, once enough. Once is enough. 
All right. Well, I love you, Dad. Thank you for being supportive of my insane life because it could never match your beautifully insane yeah. life. And we'll talk, we'll talk about Rasan Roland Kirk next time. Another time. And right. Elton Jones and the great Billy Higgins, who loved you dearly. Indeed. All right. I love you very much, Pops. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't already, we would really appreciate you hitting that subscribe button and leaving us a positive review. All show notes and social media links can be found on our website, www.strippersintheattic.com. This episode was brought to you by House of Vixens, produced by Stephen Armstrong, editing and post-production by Adam Grigg, original music by Myron Cohen and Hart McNee. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I'm Buffy. And I'm Heaven. And together we are Strippers in the Attic. <laughs>